listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. Racist expansionism closely paralleled white supremacy at home. Quoting Kipling's poem, the Atlantic Monthly asked in an editorial, If the stronger and clever race is free to impose its will upon new caught Solomon peoples on the other side of the globe, why not in South Carolina? Had followed suit and instituted a poll tax as well. After the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the Mississippi restriction in 1898, black disenfranchisement spread to Louisiana in 1900, Alabama in 1901, and on across the South. Writing to the Richmond Planet, Sergeant Major John Galloway, a black soldier stationed in the Philippines, predicted the future of the Filipino is that of the Negro in the South. He was right. In 1901, the Supreme Court ruled the residents of the new U.S. colonies did not automatically enjoy rights and protections guaranteed by the Constitution. Samuel Gompers denounced cheap colonial products and labor. In November 1898, he became a vice president of the Anti-Imperialist League, joining businessmen like Andrew Carnegie and politicians like Grover Cleveland. The League enrolled 500,000 members but failed to defeat McKinley's bid for re-election in 1900 and faded soon afterwards. Criticism of expansion quickly disappeared from the labor press. In 1901, Gompers rejoiced in the Federalists' never was labor better organized and alive to its interests than now and never was America's foreign trade so stupendous. The American Federation of Labor had mixed relations with labor movements in the new colonies. In Puerto Rico, the Federation Libre de Trabajadores, FLT, accepted annexation to the United States and focused on winning an American standard of living for Puerto Rican workers. The AFL hired the FLT's founder, Santiago Iglesias, as an organizer in 1901. In the Philippines, the Union Abrero Democratica rallied for independence. Suppressed by the U.S. military, it reorganized in 1903 and in Manila led a May Day march of 100,000 demanding an end to U.S. occupation. For this, the Union was suppressed once again. In 1904, the AFL declined to organize Manila cigar makers for fear of abating Agitation of Philippine independence, very strong among the better class of workers. In Hawaii, 
white craftsmen from the states joined AFL unions, but the white unions had nothing to do with Asian workers organizing on the sugar plantations. In the wake of the Spanish-American War, the mainland economy flourished. The depression of the 1890s had ended by the time the war began. Now the recovery turned into a boom. Between 1898 and 1903, thousands of firms were absorbed into ever-larger holding companies. The largest of all was United States Steel, formed in 1901 by J.P. Morgan of New York and Albert Gary of Chicago after they bought a controlling interest in Carnegie Steel. Capitalized at $1.4 billion, U.S. Steel held 165 subsidiaries in a constellation of industries, steel, mining, shipping, and construction. Mergers reduced the ruinous competition of the Gilded Age. Government regulated industry and commerce in business-friendly ways. The first federal regulatory agency, the Interstate Commerce Commission, ICC, had accomplished virtually nothing since its establishment in 1887. Congress had authorized it merely to investigate freight railroads and make non-binding recommendations at the rates they should charge. In 1906, the ICC's power expanded. Thanks to lobbying by manufacturers and merchants seeking predictable shipping costs, the agency now got jurisdiction over all interstate transportation and its rulings on rates became binding unless overturned by the courts. A consortium of food companies lobbied for the Pure Food and Drug Act and Meat Inspection Act of 1906, which imposed product standards acceptable to manufacturers. Bankers designed the Federal Reserve System, established in 1913 to regulate finance. The Federal Trade Commission, set up the following year to regulate industrial corporations, was the brainchild of business magnates most notably George Perkins of U.S. Steel. Experts helped to sustain the business boom. The dollar volume of U.S. goods sold abroad increased by more than 50% between 1901 and 1914. The most important U.S. import was labor. Immigration to the United States rose from 229,000 arrivals in 1898 to more than 800,000 in 1904 and averaged about a million a year over the next decade. To native-born old Americans, the crowded immigrant ghettos of modern cities seem to be cesspools of vice and crime and a threat to social order. Proposed solutions came from many quarters. Old-fashioned evangelists and moral reformers campaigned to eradicate drinking, gambling, and prostitution. Newer ideas came from middle-class reformers who called themselves progressives. Virtually every industrial state saw campaigns to ban child labor, regulate hours and conditions for women and teenagers, set standards for workplace safety and health. Beginning in Illinois in 1893, reformers in several states had lobbied successfully for labor laws to protect children and women in manufacturing but these protections were often overturned in court or simply not enforced. When Congress took up child labor legislation starting in 1906, 
Southern textile manufacturers fiercely resisted it, but northern companies, already bound by state restrictions on child labor, supported federal action to reduce the competition's advantage. In 1911, the National Association of Manufacturers wrote a model, compensation law that restricted injured workers' claims. Within three years, business lobbyists had persuaded 25 states to adopt association's formula. Separation of the races, especially in the South, was the most sweeping manifestation of the progressive era's obsession with social order. After the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of Louisiana's separate but equal, railroad cars in Pleasy v. Ferguson, 1896, white legislators enacted a myriad of laws that required the segregation of nearly every aspect of Southern life, from streetcars, theaters, residences, and cemeteries, to brothels and the Bibles used to swear in witnesses in court. According to some Southern progressives, segregation solved the problem of violence between races. Military intervention backed up diplomatic initiatives. U.S. forces joined other imperial powers in suppressing China's Boxer Rebellion in 1900 and stayed for almost 30 years. In 1903, U.S. warships backed a rebellion in Colombia's Isthmus of Panama in order to create a government to sign a canal treaty already prepared by New York lawyers. The Panama Canal opened in 1914. To protect American lives and prosperity, U.S. troops occupied Cuba from 1906 to 1909 and again in 1917. Nicaragua almost continuously from 1912 to 1933. Mexico in 1914 and 1916 and 17, Haiti from 1915 to 1934, and the Dominican Republic from 1916 to 1924. When Major General Smedley Butler looked back on his Marine Corps services in the Americas and China, he concluded, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. The labor movement reflected changing times. It coalesced around three organizational centers, the American Federation of Labor, the Socialist Party of America, SP, and a radical union known as the Industrial Workers of the World, IWW. The three competed to lead American labor, each with a different program for winning better working conditions, richer lives, and social justice. The American Federation of Labor focused on collective bargaining contracts negotiated by professional representatives of well-funded unions of highly skilled workers organized according to their separate crafts. The formula had weaknesses in contrast to the Federation's early years, craft unions now routinely crossed one another's pickets and endlessly disputed jurisdictions. Salaried union officers and staff sometimes became grafters, offering employers sweetheart deals in return for bribes. As of 1910, about 7,300 women workers, less than 1% of the female labor force, belonged to any union. In 1900, only about 30,000 African Americans belonged to unions. 
two-thirds to the United Mine Workers, UMW. In Birmingham, Alabama, black workers were active in the UMW, federal unions, and locals affiliated with the national unions of barbers, plasterers, hoe carriers, iron workers, and others. Birmingham was exceptional. However, in most cities, the AFL had few or no black members. New immigrants from southern and eastern Europe were rarely skilled workers, and many AFL leaders considered them unfit for union membership and even admission to the United States. The Federation lobbied Congress to test immigrants for literacy, which would, according to Gompers, shut out a considerable number of South Italians and Slavs and other equally are more undesirables. In 1903, sugar beet workers in Oxnard, California formed the Japanese Mexican Labor Association, JMLA, won a strike against a wage cut and applied for AFL membership. Gompers agreed to issue a charter, but only if the union would henceforth exclude Asians. When the JMLA refused to comply, he broke off all relations. AFL organizer Juan Ramirez helped migrant farm workers near Long Beach and San Pedro form La Union de Jornaleros Unido, FLU number 13097 in 1911. An independent union of Tijanos railroad workers in Laredo became FLU number 11953 in 1905. In El Paso, Texas, Anglo and Mexican American workers organized integrated locals of the Typographical Union, the Painters Union, and the Brotherhood of Carpenters, but these locals did not include Mexican immigrants. When 144,000 anthracite coal miners in the UMW went out on strike in 1902, the NCF swung into action. Gompers and Mitchell stymied bitumous coal miners' plans for a sympathy strike, and NCF Businessmen blocked the coal company's efforts to secure intervention by federal troops. Theodore Roosevelt, who had succeeded to the presidency with McKinley's assassination in 1901, ordered arbitration, which ended in a compromise that raised pay but did not meet the strikers' demands for union recognition and the eight-hour day. One increasingly popular method was scientific management pioneered by Frederick Winslow Taylor at the Midvale Steel Works in eastern Pennsylvania. The key, he decided, was to control workers' every move. First, he carefully analyzed the machinist's labor, dividing each task into a series of simple motions, all of which he timed with a stopwatch. When he decreed the one best way to perform each motion, and demanded that workers strictly follow his decrees. As scientific management undercut unions' clout on the shop floor, the National Association of Manufacturers, NAM, tried to wipe them out with the open shop drive. A crusade against unionism launched in 1903. The NAM, NAM worked also with the American Anti-Boycott Association, which specialized in taking unions to court State and federal judges issued hundreds of injunctions against strikes, organizing drives, and other union activities. AFL membership fell 
by about 222,000 between 1904 and 1906, and the loss was not fully recouped for another half decade. While AFL headquarters fought dissent tooth and toenail, it also modified its policies to allow for political action in the two-party system. In particular, the Federation sought to exempt labor from the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, whose ban on conspiracies to restrain free trade provided the foundation for most legal assaults on unions. In 1908, AFL spokesmen brought their cause to the Republican and Democrat conventions. The Republicans recoiled, the Democrats gave it a lukewarm endorsement, and the AFL backed a presidential candidate for the very first time, Democrat William Jennings Bryan, who lost to the Republicans William Howard Taft. Four years later, the AFL would back a victor as Democrats and liberal Republicans faction vied for labor support. The upturn in the Federation's political fortunes was closely linked to the McNamara case, the most dramatic episode in the annals of open shop drive. The iron workers had fought back by dynamiting some 87 steel structures built by non-union labor. On October 1, 1910, 20 workmen died in an explosion that leveled the printing plant of the Los Angeles Times, a tireless champion of the open shop. The following spring, two iron workers, James B. McNamara and his older brother, John J., the union's national secretary-treasurer, were indicted for murder in connection with the blast. Brothers pled not guilty and every branch of the labor movement from arch-conservatives to revolutionaries rallied in their defense. Then, on December 1, 1911, the McNamara suddenly changed their pleas. Some said Gompers wept when he heard the news. Running for re-election in 1912, President Taft denounced unions for lawlessness in labor disputes. Liberal Republicans broke away to form the Progressive Party and run Theodore Roosevelt on a platform that called for workplace safety standards, old age pensions, an eight-hour day for women and teenagers, and other labor reforms. Democrat Woodrow Wilson endorsed workers' rights to organize and carried the election with the backing of the AFL. Wilson's first year in office went badly for labor. Congressional bills to exempt unions from antitrust law were repeatedly blocked. The Justice Department indicted the United Mine Workers for conspiracy to organize the entire coal industry. Meanwhile, in southern Colorado, union miners launched a strike against Rockefeller's Colorado Fuel and Iron, CFI. In September 1913, over 11,000 strikers and the families left CFI camps and set up tent colonies. Cheering them on was the veteran labor organizer, Mother Mary Jones, then in her 70s and fresh out of jail for assisting a coal strike in West Virginia. The CFI battle wore on for months with company guards and the state militia escorting scabs to work and harassing strikers. On April 20, 1914, all hell broke loose. Militiamen and guards machine-gunned and torched the tent colony at Ledlow. Twenty-one people were shot or burned to death, including eleven children. 
As the news spread, armed trade unionists poured into the region to defend the miners. Federal troops finally stopped the fighting in May, by which time 66 miners or their family members had been killed. The strikers held out until December, then returned to work in defeat. In the wake of the Ludlow Massacre, Congress debated and eventually passed the Clayton Act. It stated that labor organizations should not be construed to be illegal combinations in restraint of trade under the antitrust laws, and it barred injunctions against peaceful and lawful strikes. President Wilson signed the act into law in October 1914. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.